It's Thursday, September 30th, 2021, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavritis, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program and Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California On Your Mind. Good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, there's a lot to cover today. Uh, fresh off his recall victory, California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a series of bills that will surely impact the lives of ordinary Californians. Uh, the first I'd like to uh, to raise is the issue of housing. Early in his administration, uh, Governor Newsom called for a Marshall Plan to, to address the shortage of affordable housing. Uh, well, in, uh, in last week, he signed a set of major housing bills, including Senate Bill 9 and Senate Bill 10. Uh, SB 9 permits duplexes to be built in most neighborhoods across the state, including areas where apartments have been, have been historically zoned out. And SB 10 reduces environmental rules on construction of multifamily housing. But Lee, I'd like to start off with you. Uh, does this legislation address issues surrounding housing affordability? And does it help would, would-be home buyers in the middle class? And as, as a follow-up to these questions, why not reduce environmental rules outlined in SB 10 for single family residents? Yeah, so I think California managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory with, with SB 9. Um, so we all know that we need to build more. Um, but the way we need, we need to do this is by making sure there's relatively broad support and that construction is relatively reasonably priced and that regulations are not there just for the asking, but they're there for legitimate reasons. And SB9 sort of avoided all that. So here's what SB9 does. In areas that, uh, in most areas of California, so areas that are not rural, areas with um, population of over 5,000 and, uh, areas that um, are not identified as high fire hazard, although Paradise, California is not one of those, surprisingly enough. Single family lots can be split and the existing home can be converted into a duplex and the other part of the lot can have a duplex built on it. So one can see a single family lot move to the same lot that now has four living units. Now, the real problem that I saw with this is that there was just so much opposition to this within the state uh, that this is going to be incredibly cumbersome when it actually gets around to being implemented. And it's actually not really going to move the needle much in terms of what's going on. I'll explain that. I'll explain that here in just a moment. But 200 cities opposed SB9. And the reason is maybe a bit is not in my backyard, but a big part of the reason is they don't want to give up local control. Now, on the other hand, some of these cities didn't do a whole lot in terms of approving new housing. So they have some blame 
uh, in this area. But on the other hand, it's, uh, it's nuts to think that one size from Sacramento fits, fits all cities across, <laughs> across the street, ranging from Borrego Springs, which is 5,300 people, to places like Long Beach or Irvine. Um, and in order to do this, now let's think about the legality of this. Suppose I want to split my lot and turn my existing home into a duplex and put a duplex on the other part of the lot. Well, I can't have a mortgage because my mortgage covenant doesn't allow me just to split my lot just like that. So the number of people who are going to have this opportunity are those who can either pay off their mortgage or who own their home outright. And a housing research center at UC Berkeley has estimated that only about 5% of single family homes in the state qualify. Mm -hmm. So 95% will, will not qualify. Now you might be thinking, well, can't someone just turn around and you know, say they're close to retirement age and they sell their property to a large developer, corporate housing, and they're deep pockets, this developer, corporate housing. And so they can buy the thing cash and then they can go ahead and put up two duplexes. Well, that's not supposed to happen. If you do this, you are supposed to live on the property for a minimum of three years. And ironically, for those people who opposed SB9, because of concerns about neighborhood quality, or you know, is there going to be somebody putting up a, a house right next, you know, right on the top of the setback from my home? Um, this is making it much worse because whereas before someone could have just got some could have just sold that property to a deep pocket developer who would put maybe two really, really nice duplexes on the property and probably would have worked with neighbors because they don't want to be part of a lawsuit. Uh, but now you might have your neighbor cash strapped after they pay off the mortgage and they put up some lean to, and that's exactly what people didn't want. So it's not going to make a whole lot of difference in terms of the housing sphere. Uh, it's going to lead to lawsuits. Um, SB 10, which is the other major uh, legislation, which allows um, living areas of up to 10 units can be built in uh, what's called a jobs-rich or transit-rich environment. So basically right. urban, urban areas. Um, that's already, is constitutionally, constitutionality has already been questioned. I suspect the same thing is going to happen for SB9. Um, uh, Jonathan, as you noted, the devil is in the details and nothing about SB9 is, is confronting issues related to uh, all the regulations that we have that make, uh, that make housing just so remarkably expensive here. So, Lee, I have two questions for you. First, um, you point out something very important. Uh, this is kind of a one-size-fits-all remedy, and California is hardly a one-size-fits-all enterprise, if you will. So I'm up in the Bay Area. I'm in Palo Alto, where doing um, high-density housing makes a lot of sense along the Caltrain line. Let's say people could commute from here up to the San Francisco and back, or it certainly makes sense over the East Bay, where people like to take the uh, BART into San Francisco. So it works there. You're in Santa Barbara. Maybe this doesn't work as well. So 
I'm not sure why Sacramento has to do this, why local government shouldn't do it. So number one, is this really more of a local solution than a Sacramento solution? Second question, Lee, is I understand this legislation. You're more the expert on this than I am. Uh, There's no provision that new housing has to be either affordable or market capped. Um, And I'm trying to make sense of this. On the one hand, um, you know, those of us who are to the right of center think, fine, why not have that restriction? But on the other hand, Lee, if you don't have any kind of language in there about, about housing being affordable or market capped, uh, how is it not going to be a, de- a bonanza for developers who are just going to come in and just build, again, more expensive units that people can't afford to buy, which is at the heart of this issue, that people simply can't afford housing in California? Yeah, I mean, Bill, you hit the nail on the head. Um, it is a one-size-fits-all remedy. And that's the reason why 200 different cities were really opposed to this, because, you know, as we as we mentioned a moment ago, uh, Borrego Springs and Long Beach are about as different as as they can be when it comes to when it comes to building housing. Um, So I think people legitimately have a concern about this. Um, And, you know, the idea that. that they're sort of being forced to do things that may be very costly for some cities to do. We have aging infrastructure. Um, Imagine that if we did substantially increase housing because some single family neighborhoods are putting up duplexes. Well, the people who live on those lots would be the ones who benefit from that new activity, but who pays for the new water lines, power lines, sewer lines, who pays all the new public infrastructure and public services that would have to go along with that? Well, that's going to be paid predominantly by their neighbors um, who are not receiving benefits from from this from this new activity. Um, so it really is, uh, I think it's 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 a classic example of what happens when you try to get buy-in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, the people behind SB9, um, I think it was Tony Atkins was one of the folks that was sponsoring this. Yes. You know, they tried to turn it into something that was palatable. Something was, well, if we do this, will it make it more acceptable to you? Mm-hmm. If we do this, will it make it more acceptable to you? And all the things you mentioned, um, the housing is not supposed to be, quote, affordable. Uh, it can be market rate. Uh, all of those things were added on to try to make this palatable to all those cities that said, hey, you know what, you're stepping on us. You don't understand what we need to do in order to create sensible development. You have no idea what our issues are. That was supposed to assuage those concerns. And and what, what came out of the sausage factory is a bill that has a lot of people riled up, a lot of people upset on both sides, uh, as only, you know, only California can do, and um, that will probably add about, over the next 10 years, about 400,000 extra units in a state that has 8 million single family homes. So it really isn't gonna move the needle. I mean, <clears throat> at some level, what major cities should be doing, and, uh, and my goodness, we have enough blighted neighborhoods in Los Angeles, San Jose, San Diego, pretty much every major city is to go in and buy up city blocks and take the wrecking ball to 100 plus year old homes that are falling down and turn these into high density areas where existing homeowners aren't going to complain 
and with all the money they would spend on all the regulation and all the lawyers, um, build something nice with parks and shopping areas and something that the entire the entire city can get behind. That's what needs to be done. Um, instead of trying to figure out, hey, can, can we squeeze one more granny unit <laughs> onto uh, onto this property down at the end of the end of the street? Lee, I'm curious from an economic standpoint, um, the challenge for housing in California is the challenge in terms of building more units. Are we looking for people who want to become first time home buyers or is the challenge for people who are in the system, Lee, and want to move up the ladder? In other words, somebody who somebody who rents and just wants to actually have equity, or is a challenge for a young family that wants more space for a growing family? Yeah, so demographics play a really big role. A lot of this is towards looking to the future and for people who will not have that equity. For those already in the system, you know, they've been blessed by owning an asset that's had you know remarkable price appreciation. Uh, so it was really mostly younger people and, and then looking to the future with people who are now 15 years old and 15 years from now will hope, be hoping to buy a home. Um, and they're still going to be in trouble. And Newsom, uh, you know, Newsom uh, is trying to uh, is trying to mansplain his way out of his initial <laughs> campaign promises, which were to uh, have a Marshall Plan for housing. And I think he was going to do something like build 500,000 units per year um, in, 19, in 2019, which was before the pandemic. So it's a, it's a, it's a relevant comparable year. We were 80% below his goal. And so now Gamma's major promise in, in the first campaign in 2018, he'll be up for re-election a year from now, um, has failed. Uh, he now he now has sidestepped and is saying, well, I guess I was reaching a bit for that 500,000 units per year. You think? And we won't, saw, and he said, we won't solve California's housing crisis under my watch. Uh, so a very different perspective on this than when he was 2018, Gavin. But he, you know, he still is Gavin. He's still talking about big, bold moves and visionary thinking and the sky's the limit. And when Gavin gets back down to earth, um, it's, not, it's not really the way he, uh, he thinks it is. Um, I'll just give you one more example about just how important it is to reduce development and construction costs. Um, there's a 0.4 acre lot on Skid Row in Los Angeles um, that is going to create uh, permanent housing for homeless, um, primarily for veterans, and also to have supportive services for those people. Um, so I don't know, let's call that 0.4 acre of a lot in Skid Row. I don't know, maybe its market value is uh, maybe $3 million. I don't know what it is, but I don't think it's much more than $3 million, $2 million given this location. Mm -hmm. Well, 228 units, most of which will be about 400 square foot studios. Okay, so kind of you know, New York living um, is gonna cost about $160 billion. Mm -hmm. And that works out to $1,160 per square foot. And for the builders and people in the real estate industry who are listening to us, um, I hope you'll write in because that construction cost is just off the charts. 
look around anywhere in the rest of the country outside of California, and we will see construction costs in the area of, you know, $300 a square foot, $350 a square foot, not Manhattan, but most of the rest of the country. And where is all that money going? Well, there are plumbers on that on that construction site that are getting paid probably two to two and a half times the market rate for a plumber and the same for the electricians and the same for the folks who pour cement. And there's probably 20 different state and federal agencies involved with hundreds of attorneys because the financing for these types of programs that comes with the territory of building, quote, affordable housing, because it's not anything close to affordable at $1,150 a square foot. That's where a lot of the money goes. And there's no reason. There's no reason why have, we have to be overpaying for the labor that builds this and why we have to have so many agents involved, so many lawyers, so many planners. Um, it is just, um, I mean, we could be giving these people a couple hundred thousand dollars and be telling them, hey, you know what? In Iowa, you can buy a really nice house on your own rather than live in a 400 square foot studio apartment in the middle of Skid Row. So this is just the kind of insanity we have. So the problem, Lee, is that we don't have enough Steve Ballmers in California. And I mentioned Steve Ballmer. He's the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers. And as you know, Leah, they're building a new arena in Inglewood, uh, right around the corner from the uh, uh, the Rams' uh, fabulous new stadium, the SoFi Stadium. And Mr. Ballmer is going to spend, I think, $3 billion, at least of his own money to build this thing. And he seems to have a lot of friends in city government who've cut a lot of corners on CEQA and things like that. So it's good to be a gazillionaire and it's good to have friends in government, I suppose, is the moral of the story. Yeah, particularly in our beautiful state of California. Mm -hmm. uh, gentlemen, the the, um, the housing crisis um, has been further exacerbated by the economic setbacks um, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. California's long-awaited eviction ban uh, ends tonight, and uh, CalMatters is reporting that 724,000 California households are still behind $2.5 billion in rent. Uh, the current law shields tenants who have paid at least 25% of their rent between September 1st, 2020 and September 30th, 2021. And to qualify for rent relief, uh, tenants must testify under penalty of perjury that they have been financially impacted by, impacted by the pandemic and earn below 80% of the area's median income. Uh, Lee, what do you think uh, will be the economic implications um, of this coming deadline, especially for the state budget, uh, landlords, uh, and uh, ultimately uh, the tenants themselves. Yeah, so this this has been another another tale of the state trying to provide social insurance to households when we've lived through a government engineered depression. Um, so the government stopped a lot of enterprise, a lot of business. And it was really incumbent upon them to provide insurance to the people who are bearing those costs. And now that that protection is ending, Jonathan, I think you mentioned there were 725,000 renters Correct. who were behind. Yes, um, now they can continue to receive some protection if, now this is the big if, if they have applied for rental assistance. As of earlier this week, less than half of those, 309,000 households, so less than half, have applied for that assistance. If they have, then they can still be protected against eviction. But uh, I don't think we're going to see 
400,000 coming into the system who've applied for that assistance today. So this could be really, really significant. Um, California's already spent two thirds of this initial allocation of a billion and a half from Washington. Um, but there's a lot of landlords who themselves are struggling because they're not getting paid. Uh, and some haven't been paid for months. So this is yet another challenge within the state that wasn't planned out very well, that hasn't been managed too effectively. Um, you know, I think at one point during the pandemic, when things really shut down, landlords, even, you know, even, even if they weren't getting a lot of money, um, they just wanted rent to be paid. Uh, and they weren't particular. I mean, no landlord really wants to evict uh, a, a good tenant. Um, but now, now that the economy has turned up a bit, and their RP and the unemployment rate is down, California still has the 49th highest unemployment rate in the in the in the country, but it's fallen down to about seven percent. Now they're probably tempted to say, "Look, this person hasn't paid for six months or eight months or whatever it is," and I have people who are ready and able to pay. Now we're gonna be running into that. So I suspect what we will see is perhaps, um, I don't know, Bill, what do you think? Is the state legislature gonna do anything here at the 11th hour? Because um, there's an awful lot of people who potentially could be impacted by this. I think so, Lee. Um, I would not be surprised in part because they are already looking step ahead. So keep in mind, we're talking uh, at the end of September. We're right in the middle of bill signing season. Uh, and for those not indoctrinated in the ways of Sacramento, the legislature um, passed all legislation that it uh, could do this year onto the governor on September the 10th. He has until October the 10th to sign off on legislation. Uh, after that, the governor gets a little time off for good behavior, and then he has to delve into figuring out the budget because he has to introduce a budget uh, proposal next January. Uh, Lee, the, uh, the Legislative Analyst Office put out a report on Monday. You're just going to love the language that they issued. Here's what they said, quote, we currently project that there is a strong chance that collections from the state's big three taxes, personal income, sales, and corporation taxes, will exceed the budget Act assumption of $170 billion in 2021-2022, they reported. With this addition, Lee, this is where I find this abusive, quote, our current best estimate is that the amount of unanticipated revenue likely will fall somewhere between $5 billion and $25 billion. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is kind of a long-winded way of saying, fellows, that uh, California's revenue fluctuates wildly, as we've talked around on past uh, podcasts as well. And uh, as we're doing this, uh, the close of the market on Thursday the 30th, if you look at the Dow today, Lee, I think it was down about 545 points. Percentage-wise, not a hit, but it does kind of raise this interesting specter for the governor. Um, all governors at some point face hard times on budgets. Jerry Brown walked into one. He walked away of surpluses. Gavin, Gavin Newsom walked into a surplus. He got hit during the pandemic, but now times are flush. But if Lee, and again, I don't want to be chicken little here because by the time people listen to this on Friday, the market could have bounced back large for all we know. What if there's an economic downturn in the market, at least now, at least revenue is not flowing into Sacramento. Now the governor has to start making decisions that he did not have to make last year during the pandemic of spend, spend, spend. He has to decide who gets less. And that is complicated, folks, by the fact that he just survived a recall election where he owes a lot of people for coming to his rescue. And so we've already seen this in terms of some of, some of the bill signing actions where he's let down some people and rewarded others. So anyway, Lee, he just might be faced with a situation where he doesn't have as much to spend. But again, I just love the fact, Lee, that it says anywhere from $5 billion to $25 billion. You economists, you get away with so much. 
you know, <laughs> Bill, a billion here, five there, 20 there, you know, <laughs> that's chump change. <laughs> well, you know, what, what's, what's striking about that is that um, it has become remarkably difficult to forecast revenue swings within the state. Yes. Um, you know, you describe why, because these revenue sources are, 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 are so volatile. And when people realize capital gains, this year may be okay for the state because a lot of people are, are, are fearing an increase in tax rates from Biden. So may as well realize capital gains now than next year. If people were thinking about this year versus next year, maybe two years from now. And, you know, we've had a, uh, a remarkable stock market, um, you know, going on now, I mean, close to a decade. So um, uh, unless people are thinking that, you know, what goes up can't come down, <laughs> the market will. And that's going to be bad news for California. And whoever's California gov governor is just, I mean, you're really beholden. You're really beholden to which direction that capital gains, Dow Jones, S&P 500, Wilshire 5000, you're really beholden to which way that train is going. And, um, you know, Bill, just to, uh, to throw in a, uh, uh, an unashamed plug for our California on your mind column this week, I wrote about, uh, I wrote about the, uh, the state's employment department. Um, EDD. It, uh, EDD. It looks like the loss from fraud is $31 billion or higher. So when you mentioned $25 billion, I thought, well, we're still under the amount of fraud that, <laughs> that was approved by the employment department. Um, and it looks like California will account for over half of the unemployment fraud within the entire country. And, uh, you know, it, it, within the column, um, I talked about budget priorities, you know, so I'm kind of circling back to the issue of mm -hmm. hard choices have to be made. Back in 2013, the, uh, the state got a grant from the Obama administration, which they used to purchase fraud protection software, mm -hmm. uh, and which did an enormously good job. So that fraud protection software was in place between 2013 up to 2016. In 2016, the federal grant was expired. Now, this fraud protection software was expensive. It's about $2 million a year, which mm -hmm. at that time was less than 1% of the Labor Department's budget. So guess what those folks did? They, um, they canceled it. They canceled the fraud protection software that was preventing 90, 95%, 98% of this. So, you know, the old saw about penny wise, pound foolish. Um, it is just remarkable some of the decisions that are made. And I have no reason to think that the priorities that would come with our next budget would be any more sensible than what we saw back in 2016. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad Jonathan mentioned the eviction um, situation because this does beg the question, Lee, of uh, the governor kind of picking winners and losers in the COVID society, if you will. Uh, I'd like to point you to two bills that he's considering right now. Uh, one is Senate Bill 314, the other is Assembly Bill 61. Uh, and what they would do, Lee, is they would expand outdoor dining options across California, even after the pandemic. This would allow neighborhood restaurants to use parking spaces to do outdoor dining. If you 
came up here and we went out to dinner in Menlo Park, for example, Santa Cruz Avenue or California Avenue, Palo Alto, you find that the streets have been taken over by this outdoor dining, which is kind of lovely in some regards. It's like being in Europe, if you will. Um, but what we're looking at is kind of economically the change behavior in California and how to keep some businesses alive. So this would be in some regards kind of a carve out to restaurants, if you will. So and the question would be, Lee, if you're going to start picking winners and losers in this in this COVID and post-COVID economy, you're the governor. Where do you start looking? Well, it uh, it, it 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 might start it might start with those hit hardest and restaurants have been hit remarkably hard. And, and I'd, point out that, I'd point out, by the way, he's a wine and restaurant guy in, in private sector. So he probably uh, yes, has a he is. soft spot for it. Yes, he is. Yes. We know he, he likes to go to nice restaurants too. So. Yes. He's <laughs> yeah. As we know, as, as we know, um, I don't think the French laundry is in any risk of, of shutting down. <laughs> but, 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 no, but no, you go down the list of restaurants, movie theaters, you know, the familiar list of people who have been pounded by COVID. It's this question of where government should come to the rescue for these industries. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, where's, where, where's, where's my piece of the action? Uh, that's the question that always comes up when we note that we can't save everybody, and when we note we don't have a budget to save everybody, then who gets saved? Is it the politically most connected? Is it the uh, the businesses that are considered to be the quote, most important? Probably hard to say that restaurants are the most important. Home mm-hmm. cooking is a pretty good substitute for eating out. Um, but there's really, you know, it's it's really a no win. Once you start going down the road of subsidies, it's really a no win situation because some will be the chosen few and others will be left out, and they will naturally ask why them and why not me. And there's really no getting around that. Uh, restaurant business is down, I think, seventy five percent relative to pre pandemic. Interestingly, it's now um, it's now worse uh, than it was back in the spring, which I don't completely understand. Perhaps it's because you know the Delta variant is out, and we thought we were out of the woods, and 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 we're not. But you know, I, I mean, here at Hoover, t- typically ninety five percent of us believe that you know subsidies should be either eliminated or grossly reduced, and they're better be a really good reason why to subsidize something, that there's additional benefits to society that the market is not capturing. Some good reason other than just to say, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to prop up the restaurant industry and I'm prop up the mom and pop hardware uh, sector. And that's what I'm doing today um, for no particularly good economic reason. Um, so that's going to be a tough one for him to, to manage. Um, but Gavin is on a, you know, he feels like he's riding high on the wave. Uh, he probably should feel that way after winning roughly 65-35 and, uh, and having a campaign that just masterfully managed to sweep all the challenges in California under the rug and make sure people were really scared about the potential recall candidates who would have replaced him. The... Um... Anderson School um, at the University of California, uh, Los Angeles, uh, released its quarterly report this week. Um, it says that the state only recovered 62% of the 2.71 million jobs it lost during March and April of 2020 uh, when COVID-19 inspired shutdowns uh, began. Given the exodus of business and declines in the hospitality and uh, leisure industries, which you had uh, mentioned, uh, Lee, uh, does the state 
does the state have the capacity to recover those lost jobs at a quicker pace? What's really striking about the Anderson School's new forecast, uh, it follows up on their June forecast, so literally just three months ago. And that forecast has changed remarkably and, and not for the good. So back in June, the Anderson School was forecasting 7% growth, and they were using adjectives such as blockbuster and explosive and once off to describe the California economy in the coming year. And now that forecast has been pared down substantially and you won't find words like blockbuster or explosive growth. You won't find that anymore. You'll see adjectives like solid growth and, uh, that will lead to a more, a more stable economy, not necessarily a particularly stable economy, but a more stable economy than we've had. And there really was no alternative for them to go this route because California has lagged nearly every state in recovery. Now, you won't see that in Governor Newsom's uh, uh, press releases. Um, he'll talk about how growth has been rapid as it was back early in the year. The reason growth was rapid is because we went down so far. Mm -hmm. um, it's We remain the 49th highest unemployment rate in the country. Uh, I believe second, I believe second only to Hawaii, which of course right. is a total one-off from the standpoint of the, you know, it's, it's it's totally a leisure economy, leisure and travel economy. Um, so the sense in which California is is the worst. We haven't had the recovery. We lost a seat in the House in the most recent census because going back to what we talked about earlier, it's really expensive to live here. The jobs don't pay nearly enough to compensate most for being able to live here. Businesses are leaving, people are leaving. Um, and ironically, California policies are pushing us towards perhaps the most unequal, when we talk about inequality, the most unequal in terms of income distribution in the entire country. You know, the most, you know, the quote, the most progressive state in the country is now becoming one in which um, there really is no longer a set of people who would be considered middle income. Those 50 to uh, 80, $90,000 a year, which is not an awful lot to live in California, particularly if you live close to the coast. Um, so I, 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 I would, uh, you know, if I were a betting man, uh, I suspect that the Anderson's forecast come December will be even less sanguine than it is right now. California continues to be a state where opportunities just aren't being created at the same level, where the innovators that we used to love to have here, you know, are going elsewhere. Um, we are seeing, you know, literally, um, so I've, I've written a bit about businesses leaving the state and, you know, it's not as if that's stopping, if anything is accelerating, um, particularly the smaller, incredibly innovative, you know, sort of one-off, super creative entrepreneurs that look at California and look at alternative areas and say, you know, I think I can make a better go of it in a state where taxes are less and regulations are less. And I don't have to pay my people nearly as much as I have to pay them here. So um, I don't see any big change. I think what California will emerge 
if assuming we kind of get the pandemic under control and those making the the the, uh, the vaccines kind of figure all this stuff out, California will emerge weaker than it was before. And in the absence of substantial reforms in Sacramento, um, it's not going to come back to where it was. So, so Jonathan, um, sorry for the long-winded answer, but no, we're not going to recover those jobs that we had uh, back in. Um, late 2019 and January of 2020. Uh, we, we won't get back there um, for a long, long time. Now, ordinarily, this is where I jump in and take a cheap shot at UCLA, where Lee teaches, uh, especially after UCLA to spank Stanford in football this past weekend. Uh, but I can tell you, having worked for governor back in the 1990s, uh, we lived in uh, both awe and dread of the uh, Anderson School's report on the California economy. Why? For what Lee just mentioned. Governors go around at all times. They try to talk up their economy or uh, give their side of the story. And then Anderson comes out, and it's one of those things reporters in California run to to say, aha, here's the evidence. So we would just literally sit there and wait in dread, especially during the mid-90s when the economy was just starting to come back to life, thinking, please give us a good forecast so it verifies everything we said. If it's not a good forecast, we have to go back and find a new way to spin our way through this. So um, this is potentially troublesome for Newsom, but you know, Lee, this is kind of a reflection of the times in which we live. Um, that underperforming report that cautionary report, I think, which we would call it, should be a cause of concern for the governor. He should be sitting down with his people and saying, geez, what does this say about the economy? What should we be doing? But I think the reality is here we are a couple weeks after recall election. And yeah, he's still kind of on a high after that because he won. He won big. If you look at the things which he's doing and bill signing right now, a lot of this is virtual signaling. He just uh, signed a bill today having to do with policing, uh, making it more difficult to be a cop in California, making it very easy to fire a cop if you were caught, uh, uh, I can find you the exact uh, uh, law in which he did here today. Actually, he signed eight bills in all, and it was very telling, not to get too far off track here, but essentially it means if you're a cop and if you're caught using excessive force, if you're caught doing something which you consider racist, you, your badge is gone. You're out of a job. It will be harder to be a cop in California, easier, I should say, to fire a cop in California than it will be to fire a bad teacher, if you will. This is, you know, virtue signaling, plain and simple by the governor. And a lot of what he'll be doing between now and uh, next year when he does his state of the state is virtue signaling. And that's kind of the question moving ahead for this governor. Look, he goes into 2022. Uh, he would seem just pretty much a, a you know mortal lock in the gambling world for getting reelected. Um, he just signed a bill, by the way, we should note, which makes universal mail voting uh, by mail. Uh, the law in California, now eight states have done this. What does this mean? Well, we had universal mail voting in 2020. Joe Biden got about 63 and a half percent of the vote. Uh, we had it in 2021 for the recall. Newsom got, I think, 62 and a half percent the last time I looked. In other words, it just it pretty much guarantees a Democratic majority. So he seems in for another four years if he if he so wants, unless he decides to run for the Senate, if Dianne Feinstein steps down or the presidential thing, which is still out there in 2024, which we'll talk about another time. The point, though, is this, gentlemen, that he could kind of be a Debbie Downer if he wanted to be and say, wait a second, we need to pull back. We need to look at our economy. We need to look at the fact that the fact that the LAO, the fact that the LAO is saying that we could have a surplus anywhere from five to $25 billion should make us all think about, wait a second, what a wildly crazy thing we're involved here right now. Maybe we need to look at this economy, but Lee, 
I just don't think he's going to. It's just, it's, it's just not the nature of the beast in Sacramento. Ronald Schwarzenegger went down this road. He got nowhere at the Persky Commission report. And I see this governor having no interest to it. And I think things will just go on until there is the reckoning. And that's why I mentioned a little while ago about the fact that Dow was down today. And I don't want to be too much of a panic person here, but we are in October. October has historically been troublesome for the market. See 1929, 1987. But if this market did suddenly go very south very fastly and you know it took with it an effect on people's stock then there would be real problems in sacramento problems which this governor number one would not have anticipated and secondly i'm not sure that he is very well designed to deal with no no the real the real trouble i see with such um an overwhelming recall vote roughly you know nearly two to one um is that he comes out of this thinking you know um I think I mentioned this before. It's a Sally Field moment. Uh, <laughs> you love me. You really love me. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm good to go. Um, so instead of taking a step back and thinking about how to manage forests and how to take care of our remarkably underperform, underperforming K through 12 and dealing with CEQA, other types of regulations and a tax system that leads to you know, roller coaster movements and revenue, that have been around forever. And we've been talking about these forever. Um, instead, he's still kind of operating in fantasy land. Um, um, you know, there was, um, there was a fellow um, who filed a lawsuit, a Hispanic fellow who filed a lawsuit against the state employment department because he provided his identity and they said he didn't. So they kicked him out of the system. The judge award. The judge said, "Yeah, of course, of course. I see the paperwork. I see that you provide your identity. They owe you the money." This guy was a construction worker. He's now homeless. He lost his car. Uh, it's been seven months, and he has been paid. So he's living in, in a tent somewhere. Um, and that's the story of what California's really become for millions and millions of people. This fellow should have been protected and would have been protected had the employment department ever, ever been accountable for making changes that have come up the last 15 years. Um, so I only bring this up because I think it's really is becoming the poster child of what's wrong with California governance. So Bill, I agree with you completely. The governor is, uh, is riding high, which means he's not willing to confront the nasty and troublesome problems that if solved or if progress could be made would be the right thing to do for virtually everyone. Um, but, but that's not, that's not happening now. This one element I'd like to add here, uh, the Jonathan, we'll get back to you. It's um, the more that Joe Biden struggles as a president, the more that Kamala Harris struggles as a vice president, the more it raises the question of the future of the Democratic Party. And you're Gavin Newsom, and I know you will say no until the sun goes down that you have no interest in presidential politics. Baloney. Every California governor, trust me, I work for one, they look in a mirror and they see a president of the United States. They all joke about members of Congress, the same thing. They all see a president. California governors are no exception. California governors also historically run for president while they're in office and they fail. The joke I like to say is like Napoleon, they go to the snows of New Hampshire and they die in the snow, just as he died in the snows of Russia. It doesn't work out that well. But if 
Biden continues to struggle, and his presidency has not had a past few months. We can agree on that. And Kamala Harris has struggled in her role as well. Suddenly, she is a very weak proposition in 2024 if Joe Biden is up one for re-election. The party's nomination is wide open, and there'll be Gavin Newsom halfway through his second term as governor with the obligatory story to tell Democrats of, as my state goes, show to America. And since we are a very big blue progressive bubble out here, it's a very sexy message for Democratic activists. The point of this, Lee and Jonathan, is that you don't want Gavin Newsom to get too sucked into national politics. This is one of the best things to happen with Jerry Brown's governorship uh, back in the last decade. Jerry comes to office in 2010. He has run for the presidency, God, how many times? At least three uh, off the top of my head. He ran twice as an incumbent governor. He ran again in 1992 in that kind of uh, quixotic campaign against Bill Clinton. But Jerry realized that his time had passed as a presidential candidate. To his credit, he just focused on California's well-being and stayed out of national politics, really, till Donald Trump came along. Newsom's been involved in national politics from the day one. Remember, he comes to office and he is quickly the head of the so-called resistance, makes California kind of the fortress of the resistance, if you will. Um, you would like to think that the recall might have humbled him a little bit, but it did not. I think it does just the opposite, Lee and Jonathan. I think it empowers him. And again, if Joe Biden goes through a very rugged 2022, as he did a 2021, and let's say the Democrats lose control of Congress, and you go into 2023 and there's a reelected Gavin Newsom sitting out there, um, the point is that he'll pay more attention to national politics. He'll tailor California to the national winds, if you will. And it's just not a good look for the state. I think there's be a lot of bad policy will come out of that. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree entirely. The um, if uh, again, if I was a betting man, um, I don't believe either Biden or Harris will ultimately be um, will ultimately be who the Democratic Party chooses. So that opens the door for Newsom. Um, I don't think he will play that well in very many states outside of California, Massachusetts, part of New York, part of Pennsylvania, part of New Jersey. But um, I think if uh, I, I wish his political advisors would tell him, hey, you solve some of these issues in California, you solve you. You make a dent in homelessness without breaking the budget. You make a dent in housing and bring the cost of living down. You fix stuff like the unemployment system. You you make the K through 12 system work better. Then you're the man. But um, but you, this is not the time to have stars in your eyes and be thinking, how will he look behind that desk in the Oval Office? I think um, the I think the irony, Lee, is that the man's home is in the Senate. Why the Senate? The Senate is where you go if you like to talk about big, bold ideas, but you really don't like to deal with the follow through of them. And that, to me, is kind of the newsome governorship in a nutshell. Big ideas. We're going to solve homelessness in five years. We're going to, we're going to do a Marshall plan, which is more Penny Marshall than George Marshall, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, but we're going to just do great, fantastic things, but then they all get kind of sucked up. See the Oxygen Task Force, Economic Recovery Task Force, and so forth. He really is kind of a senator at heart. We could give very long speeches and talk about very large topical things and you know, go to Davos and do all that kind of stuff, rather than having to deal with the nuts and bolts of running a state government. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, I believe it's 54. So in terms of age issues, um, he still has plenty of time if he wanted to mount a presidential run. So he would have time to be in the Senate, uh, <laughs> serve as obligatory X number of years and, uh, and still throw his hat in the ring. Um, uh, and in the meantime, um, uh, sadly, I think a lot of the challenges that virtually every Every family with two kids 
in the state is facing who live on less than $80,000 a year. <clears throat> Those challenges, housing costs, how well the schools perform. Is a pothole in the road going to break your, 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 car, your car's front axle? Those things are just going to, are just going to continue. Um, you know, Newsom has, uh, you know, the, the big budget we have going this fiscal year has got 22 billion for combination, I mean, 22 billion for combination of homelessness and housing. And um, I did a calculation a while back uh, and given sort of the per homelessness budget, um, again, you could, you could, you should be able to provide these people with state-of-the-art medical care, quality housing, job training, go back to community college, um, uh, and have billions of dollars left over. Um, and you know, we keep hoping that voters kind of ask, well. You know, do we really need to spend $160 billion to house 200 homeless? Uh, how much do we have to spend to house every homeless in the state? And then what do we do when more homeless come pouring into the state? Um, that just is not what's on his radar or um, the radar of most of his uh, most of his colleagues in the Senate and the Assembly. Gentlemen, on that note about um, California's impact on national politics. Uh, California citizens, the California Citizens Redistricting Redistricting Commission is set to meet next week and has until December 27th uh, to submit a final congressional and legislative maps to Secretary of State Shirley Weber. Uh, Bill, can you can you describe how uh, redistricting works, uh, the redistricting process works in California? Is the process at all insulated from partisanship and what parts of the state are currently most at stake as, as lines get redrawn? Well, in theory, it's insulated because it's run by what's called the Citizens Redistricting Commission, which consists of five Democrats, five Republicans, and four independents. And as you mentioned, it has until two days after Christmas to turn into a new map of California. And this is complicated because for the first time in the state's history, California is going to lose a seat in the House of Representatives. It's right now, by the way, 42 to 11 in favor of uh, Democrats. Now, uh, is it partisanly infiltrated? Um, sure, both sides represented on it, and you have all kinds of special interests who kind of make little uh, approaches to them, making sure that we get looked after, uh, and they take that into account. Um, where this gets tricky is uh, probably in uh, closer where Lee is, which is down in Los Angeles County, which uh, we for, uh, we tend to forget Los Angeles County is kind of a nation unto itself or a state unto itself. It has 14 congressional seats. Um, each seat has to be 615,000 apiece. And there's some districts right now that don't reach the 615,000 quota. The uh, most glaring one would be Mike Garcia, who, by the way, just happens to be the only Republican in those 14 districts. Uh, he might get remapped. Uh, his district covers Palmdale, Santa Clarita, and Simi Valley. Um, but what this does represent is a change California in this regard, as we do this every 10 years. I looked up some numbers on this. Um, California right now, in terms of racial components, it's 39.4% Latino. That's almost a 2% increase from the last decade. Uh, we are 34.7% white. That is down over 5.4%. We are 15% Asian, which is up 2.3%. Uh, we are 5.4% Black, which is down about half a percentage. And the rest is biracial, about 5.4%. In some, what you have to do is 
you have to find districts that please everyone. And that is very difficult to do um, here in California. So either Garcia's district is going to get folded elsewhere, or you're going to have a battle where two Democrats get folded into one. Uh, and there was one of these, Lee, um, a few years ago, it was the so-called Battle of the Ermines. <laughs> where I think there are one man was named Berman and the other one German or something like that. But the Ermans became the battle. And it was kind of just a real democratic bloodbath, if you will. Um, this also ties in national politics in this regard. If, um, you know, the Democrats hold the House, but it's by a razor thin margin, I think they have something like a four seat advantage right now in terms of working majority. So they will take every uh, opportunity they can, the Democrats, to take out a Republican seat if they can. So they would sorely love for Congressman Garcia to be the victim here, uh, if you will. So again, it's going to be very fascinating to see um, the map they come out with and to see how it is racially balanced as it would like to be. And invariably, somebody's going to cry foul. And I imagine Lee, who's going to cry foul, will be Asian Americans. Because remember, when we went through this the last time, um, they sorely wanted a prominent Asian American district up here in San Jose, and it was just carved out differently. And boy, were they upset by that. Yeah, yeah. The Asian American community is one that really isn't particularly well served within the state as it exists now, because uh, as a demographic, Asian Americans are the, uh, the highest income demographic in the state. They tend to have place an enormous weight on the value of public education. Mm -hmm. And California is 40th in the country in public education. They're not finding a lot of political leaders who are uh, who they feel really have have their backs. And when we take a look at the existing map of 53 districts, um, you know, Bill, I count that there's really only about two districts that you might call, you know, highly competitive between Democrat and Republican. Um, there's maybe three or four districts that you might count as solidly Republican. Right. Um, so it doesn't seem like you know, the Democratic Party um, can or really even needs to worry too much about this. But I think the issue comes up about you know, what happens in five or six years right. if the Republican Party kind of gets their act together and figures out how to appeal to a greater share of Asian Americans, of Hispanics, of those, whichever demographic group they're in, tend to be more centrist, more in the middle politically, more apolitical, and really focused on economic issues rather than the cultural and social issues. This has taken up a lot of time with the Democratic Party. That's right, because redistricts only comes along once, about once every 10 years. Yep. So I think that's, uh, I think I think the issue is, you know, looking forward, what is what, what, what will this mean? Um, it's a chance for uh, not so much redistricting, but it's a chance for Republicans, uh, and how many times have we said this, really to try to reinvent themselves. Um, and if ever was a wake-up call for that, and there's probably been many, many wake-up calls for that, you know, what happened earlier this month uh, with the recall election, um, that, that was it. So change comes hard. And I can tell you this, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post about how the Republican Party has to kind of decide after the recall just really what it's doing. Is it in the business of winning elections or not? Boy, did I get blistered for that from a lot of people in California. But you know, I think sometimes the truth hurts. Lee, I would circle Orange County on your political map and look there. So uh, four seats flipped in California in uh, 2020, one up in the uh, Central Valley, the other three down in Orange County. A lot was made out of um, the fact that uh, you know, women ran in these races. These were, uh, you know, first and second generation immigrant women in particular, a different face, not your father's Republican Party. I think between, that was a very smart uh, way to run, by the way, these, these 
these women were very capable candidates. They had interesting human interest story, and they also were products of state and local government. So they just had chevrons on their on their sleeve. They could show they had done things. So that's that's a way to move forward. But I think you look at that and just kind of the changing composition of Orange County itself, uh, home to John Wayne Airport, of course, which I was in just a few days ago. But in terms of its uh, growing Asian American population and then just the dynamic that plays with whites and Latinos, just to see if Republicans can, in a blended community, come up with a more sensible blended message. Yeah, yeah, and some some of the some of the politicians you're discussing, um, some of the women politicians, um, are Asian American immigrants um, have flourished in California and, yeah. and 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 absolutely love living here and and can't imagine how any country could provide more opportunities or a better springboard for economic success. Um, that's exactly the kind of person that the Republican Party really should be targeting. Um, the uh, No, I, I like what you said about, you know, is the party in the business of winning elections or, or, is, it, or is it something else? And um, I agree with you 100%. The truth sometimes hurts. It is what it is. And politics used to be a game of compromise and moving to the middle while preserving the slightly more extreme forms of your base. Now it seems like it's being pushed to either extreme. And um, it's going to take real, I don't know, it's going to take real political leadership to try to right that that boat. Um, Because it's just... It's so it's it's so easy. It's so easy now to just simply say, "Okay, I've got my people, and um, and I'm just going to keep my fingers crossed that there are enough of them, and enough of the other side doesn't show up that I'll somehow win." But, yeah, and it begins um, with really Republicans have just kind of take a big picture look at how they've been marginalized over the past over a decade now, Lee. Because if you go back, what's happened in California? Uh, well, I go back to about the year 2010. There was a ballot initiative that year, Lee, that was sold all about uh, the idea that if budgets weren't passed on time, lawmakers would not get paid. Uh, but also, in addition to that, they changed the rules on term limits and supposedly made it tougher. Uh, I think it changed from 14 years to 12 years, but allowed lawmakers to stay in one chamber for the entire time if they wanted to. But was sold as kind of a punitive measure, but it did one other thing, Lee, as well. It changed the rules for passing budgets in California. Uh, back in the dark ages, when I worked in Sacramento, budgets had to have a two-third approval, a supermajority, to become law. That meant Democrats needed Republican buy-in. You'd had to get minority votes. And it, yes, it led to budgets being done over time, but Republicans were relevant. Once that measure was passed, Republicans no longer became relevant. Once they got supermajorities, Republicans were out of the budget business. And so it's been in the past decade or so. Uh, then Jerry Brown comes to office, Lee, and in 2011, one of the first things he does, he signs a message which takes ballot initiatives off the primary ballot. What is that measure? Conservatives like to run measures in primaries. Why? Lower turnout tends to get higher conservative representation. Jerry Brown, ironically, who was the Secretary of State in the 1970s, made this possible to do primaries, uh, to do ballot uh, initiatives and primaries. He takes it away. That kind of tightens the noose, if you will. Uh, in addition to that, we went into a top two primary system in which uh, the top two vote getters move on to November, regardless of party affiliation. You had in um, the last statewide election, Lee, for the nine statewide offices did not have a Republican on the ballot. 
Uh, this really speaks to bad candidates, though. But and then now you have, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the governor signing off on universal mail-in voting in California, which guarantees a large turnout of Democrats, which means that five out of eight, eight votes in statewide elections are going to be for Democrats. So if for Republicans, you had just been systematically just kind of tightened and tightened and tightened, the noose has been put around you and tightened, you have to decide a new way to go about doing your business. And so I think that's part of the soul searching here. The recall election, pardon me for filibustering here, the recall election, Neil, I kind of, uh, uh, Lee, I'm sorry, the recall election I kind of likened uh, to Operation Varsity Blues, which was the, you know, the scam to get kids into colleges. You know, undeserving kids wanted to go to USC or UCLA or Stanford or whatnot. So they hired a guy who basically ran this criminal enterprise in which Leo Hinian's kid was phonally sold as a you know, field goal kicker or a rower on a team or something like that. He paid off whoever he had to at the university and got the kid into the side door. For Republicans, Lee, the recall election was a side door into government. You didn't have to go through a primary. You didn't have to go through a long election, just a very quick race. And thanks to the quirky rules saying that just whoever gets the most votes on the second question on the ballot, he or she gets in. It was a side door for getting Larry Elder into running control of California. And guess what? The side door got slammed shut. So, you know, not not that this is a criminal enterprise, but if you're trying to figure out a new way to kind of, you know, break into the office of government, break into the governor's office, Republicans are not going to find a way to go about it doing it. So you can either sit around and wallow in your misery uh, and be resistant to change and realize that what we're doing is failing. We need to do something different here. Yeah, it's is failure is failure on a broad scale. Uh, you, it goes it goes outside of California. It's particularly focused within California because of the political makeup and the fact that there's now there's literally no political competition right. within the state. And um, you know, Bill, your thoughts bring to mind um, you know the fact that what a politician is today is just so remarkably different from what a politician was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, Bill Clinton did deals with Newt Gingrich. Um, Reagan did deals with Tip O'Neill. And afterwards, they go to the bar. Um, and I remember when Clinton had advanced um, the name of a Penn law professor, Lonnie Guineer, I think, I believe to be attorney, I believe, was that for attorney general back in the I think she was the deputy AG in charge of the civil rights division. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I remember at that time that um, her academic writings were being criticized because her her principle was, well, what if we had a political system, you know, more, more like places in Europe where it wasn't winner take all, but rather there was uh, the other side got more. And this would sort of force more deal making and more compromise and more clarity in terms of politicians saying, you know what, I, I can't just say no to you. And I think today, um, uh, I think today that is so important because now we have a situation in California where <clears throat> unless Republicans come up with something that's really, really that Democrats think that they can get a lot out of and that, that they can lever, um, they might as not, they may not as well not even be sitting in those chairs. And, uh, and, and I don't say that as a Republican or a Democrat, I'm an independent, um, but there's nothing like competition in life to generate the best outcomes. And that's true in business and that's true in politics. Well, gentlemen, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you for your time. Always a pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lee. 
You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is Bill at Bill Whalen CA. And Lee Ohanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California on Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Lee Ohanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Vardis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.